Welcome to the Violet Ghost Train, where Halloween never ends, where Christmas Eve is haunted, and where every summer's day ends in a thunderstorm. I'm your host, Crow Violet. Join us. episode two of the violet ghost train and i no longer have the most horrifying cold in the world which is rather a bonus because we're on to part two as i say and tonight we're going to get straight in with an entertaining the creepy story of the distant past a considerably nastier story of the more recent past which fortunately is fictional as far as you know And maybe a little bit of some childhood memories chucked in here and there too. It's the 1st of November at the time of recording. Some people say Halloween is over, but as M.R. James once so rightly observed, some people will say anything. I'm going to start us off then, tonight, remember it's always night on the ghost train, with a tale of a demonic black dog. The English countryside, we've, we have this long and rich history of demonic black dogs of all kinds. The thing that follows you home at night with glowing eyes and snarling growls and stalking feet. Sometimes up near Whitby it's called the trash because the noise its paws make on the gravel or the beach. The trash sound. But around here, they call it the bargast. The legendary great dark phantom hound of hell. Traditionally associated with country lanes, this is the story of the Bargast of Paradise Square. Which is rather a misleading title, actually. Because Paradise Square is what it's called now, and it is a large and beautiful square with wonderfully appointed buildings, offices, beautiful cobblestones, looking like some little picturesque marketplace. It doesn't always look like that though. Back when our story is set, it was a little bit on the leafier side. A little more picturesque. Now remember, picturesque by day equals lonesome at night time. So our story, recorded by a few Sheffield folklorists over the years, takes place round about the end of the 18th century. And we have an unnamed protagonist. He's the grandfather of the storyteller, one Joseph Woolhouse. And Joseph's granddad is walking in the fields which occupied the location that now is Paradise Square. Back in those days, this was a spooky part of town anyway. We had the Holy Croft nearby that survives as Hawley Street to this day. Where I once lived in a really haunted flat, but that is another story entirely. Anyway... Joseph's granddad is walking through the fields. He's actually crossing something called Green Lane. Now, old Mr. Woolhouse Senior, for which I presume his name was, walks with crutches, making his painful way down the dark road at night. And he enters a part 
of the landscape, a place called Hicks Style Field. Therefore, note this well, he's crossing a style. I'll return to that point in a bit. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, red-eyed and snarling, the Bargast appears. The gigantic, jet-black ghost hound of hell itself. And Joseph's granddad ran in terror, as if all the forces of darkness were after him. Which they kind of were, so you know. It's a justifiable response, I would say. And the monster, huge and howling and snarling, ran after him too, pursuing him across the fields. Gaining on the poor man all the way, closer, closer. Joseph's granddad runs as fast as he can. Dropping his crutches and running, running faster than ever before. Over the field, over the fences, down the lane into the small houses. To his own house. Slam the door shut and lock it behind him, safe at last. I got all carried away then. It's an exciting story, what can I say? It was only then did he realise he'd left his crutches behind. He'd run the whole way. And he never needed to walk with crutches ever again. I like to think that some nights he might even have whispered a thank you to that spirit of the field, the Bargas, for scaring him so much that he healed miraculously. Who knows? Maybe that was the idea all along. Maybe. Notice that the Bargas appears at a style. Now, to this day, people still report apparitions of black dogs. People often see such creatures, if I may call them that, at liminal points, styles, crossing places, bridges, fords, junctions. The places where you move from one state into another. And that's exactly where Joseph's granddad saw and was pursued by this strange beast. What does it mean? No idea at all. But I do like the idea that these are creatures of liminal space. Entities which occupy the zones that aren't quite one thing or another. Now if you think back to last episode, where I talked about the mysterious green man that's seen in Grays Park, just up the road from that very site, near a junction of two lanes in fact, People have also reported seeing the Bargast right there, but these stories are as late as 2007. Interesting, don't you think? They're with us still. Every road we walk down, every city block we drift through at night, was once a country lane or a field after all, before we were here. And someday, after we're gone, they will be again. So whether we're here or not... The Bargast always is. Okay, this week we are going to be talking about one of the most savage and in some ways minimalist pieces of folk horror that I've ever seen. It's a short film, it's barely 30 minutes long and it has scant dialogue that the film itself absolutely horrifies me every time I watch it. And yet I can't help re-watching it. And I'm concerned this could be one of those experiences where I sort of exaggerate the effect it has and people won't watch it back and be baffled by my response. But something about this film really gets under my skin, you might say. 
Now, for every cosy Monsters in the Woods story that I love, there are stories like this one, little movies that cut savagely right to the heart of our link to the land and our, our links to each other and our links to ourselves. Tonight, we're going to talk about Stigma. Now, Stigma was screened as part of the BBC's annual Ghost Stories for Christmas strand. Up to this point, these had all been very much in the sort of cosy genre, you know, Ed Edwardian or Victorian settings, roaring fires, you know, academic types getting shredded by ghosts. They're reassuring horrors, in other words. And they're adapted from the works of people like M.R. James and, and Dickens. But stigma isn't like that. And I can't help but feel that the 28th December audience, straight after Christmas Day, remember, in 1978, they were probably expecting more of that reassuring horror they'd had in previous years. And I think they probably have got a hell of a shock. Stigma is contemporarily set, and it is brutal. And it mainly takes place in the light of day in a modernised cottage. The car and the drive and the TV and all that stuff. And Stigma takes all that safety and peace that you get in that little cottage, in that beautiful setting... And it shreds it, and it shreds it just as effectively as those old academics got shredded the previous years. It's kind of a simple story in some ways. Our two characters, our, our sort of main protagonists, Catherine and Peter, they live with their daughter Verity in this renovated cottage. They are the sort of classic middle-class city dwellers going back to the land. I bet all your folk horror alarms are going off at this point, right? Yeah, correct. As part of their renovations, they're moving a big old stone in the garden. Yep, that's your sirens going off again for folk horror alerts. Moving old stones. That never ends well in this kind of narrative, does it? Looks nice there. Hmm. It's spoiler lawn, though. Oh, well. Still, I wouldn't move it. And the setting for all this, it was filmed around Avebury. And many of you are going to know Avebury, not just as this, you know, famously, legendary, wonderfully eerie, magnificent, gigantic stone circle. But also a lot of you are going to know it as the location for Children of the Stones. And if you've not heard of Children of the Stones, it's a pretty good contender for the most disturbing children's TV series ever. And that's just the theme music. Anyway, check Children of the Stones out, but I'm wandering off topic now. So as I said... New people coming to ancient houses, moving mysterious huge stones. That never, ever ends well in these kind of stories. And it very much doesn't end well here. Let's be really clear on that. So what happens? Well, I really want to avoid spoiling this one. It's quite easy to see stigma. I suggest you watch it. You, some people might be a bit triggered by it in places, I'm not sure. But what happens in this story isn't a phantom hag at the window or ghostly whispers at night and that kind of thing. What happens in this story is something much more visceral and inexplicable. And it represents a lot of different things, arguably. Because I think, most of all, I'm going to be necessarily vague at this point. What Catherine and Peter's home is suddenly haunted by is less some kind of ghostly figure. A more a loss of control and the a similar kind of loss of control to one which sooner or later we are all going to experience a variation of. Now, 
that loss of control and the title stigma, that should give you a clue as to the nature of what it is, but I really don't want to spoil it. It's something inexplicable, unexpected, but as I say, it's also something we can all imagine happening to ourselves. Our bodies do unexpected and horrible things, don't they? Sometimes, and sooner or later, they're all going to do that. And our response to that is all too often to hide it, to cover it over, to ignore it. Our bodies and our minds do things that we don't want them to do. And very often we cover it up. But that approach doesn't work. And it's dangerous and unhealthy. And it doesn't work here. What happens to Catherine in this story, she's clearly at some level desperately ashamed of. We experience a certain amount of body horror of a very intense and yeah i'll say it again disturbing kind and she tries to cover that over doesn't work in the slightest obviously and that's pretty much it we just we build from that sudden transformation to a genuinely dark and a really shattering conclusion that's almost completely powered by really mesmerizing performances in particular peter played by peter bowles Peter Bowles as an actor is best known for his sort of suave comedy aristocrats. But here, his final lines are utterly devastating. They really, his performance is very, very simple and it really haunts me. You see this character just losing his whole world in a matter of moments, it must seem to him. Utterly inexplicably and utterly in a manner that's totally beyond his power. And Kate Binchy, who plays Catherine in this story our performance is so understated and so just amazingly representative of the sort of ways that we try and cover over the things we can't control about ourselves and the things we don't understand and she passes through this story without ever truly understanding what's happening to her I think everything kind of stays unsaid and as always, there's hints of something darker in the earth. Some old influence, pure malevolence hidden below a, That reaches out, and it kind of reaches out through what's unsaid. You get these strange moments of eye contact, tension of, of lots of different kinds. And I don't want to add my interpretations onto any my investigation of those tensions personally. There's a lot I'm not saying about this, because there's a lot I want you to experience yourselves if you seek out a copy of it. But... That tension, is that tension about the things that get unleashed when we move old things that we should perhaps have left alone? This idea that there are messages of pain in the land, the countryside, because the countryside and the land anywhere, it's got a history of cruelty as well as as a history of love. But the cruelty is always there and sometimes if you disturb things, the stories you disturb are too harsh and they're too visceral if you're not properly prepared and protected for it. And you're not prepared to hear that. Perhaps if you watch Stigma, you'll wonder what I'm so disturbed by. But I've got to be honest, I think Stigma is one of the darkest and most memorable pieces of folk horror that we have. We're going to finish tonight with a new segment at the suggestion of the ever-fabulous Adam S. Leslie. And you really should be listening to Retro Jew, the podcast that he and the equally marvellous Heather hold sway over. But at Adam's suggestion, we're going to end on what might potentially be a lighter note, though I doubt it. Um, 
Welcome to the last scare of the ghost train tonight, the half-remembered horrors. Each week we are going to recall those bits of television and film, or any media you care to name really, that hang vaguely at the back of your mind. The thing on kids' TV that gave you nightmares. That book in the library that had a page that you didn't want to turn to. Or just the way you were really scared of soft mints adverts. And now I am very much showing my age. So what's going to jump out at it as a Frankenstein mask this week? Well, I think I'll be talking more about this particular show later in the series. But for now... Let's just think about the most frightening educational cartoon that I ever saw. Ever. It's the scary Look and Read Chalk Monster. Now, Look and Read was a school's TV show. The, the clue to the purpose of that show is kind of in the title. Each week, we would have another chapter of a live-action serial. Those serials, they kind of had a heavy emphasis on children uncovering spelling-based clues to criminal activity, or occasionally monsters and aliens. And there'd be links between the live-action segments with this absolutely terrifying thing called Wordy, which is this orange plastic thing with huge staring eyes and mime artist black gloved human hands. Hello, some of you know me. I'm Wordy. Wordy wasn't so bad, but yeah, he was. He was absolutely terrifying. I can't pretend otherwise. But there'd be some little cartoons as well. They're just, just little filler bits to teach you about putting an E onto the end of words to change the sound or whatever. Now, there's a lot of material out there about the film sections, especially the serial called The Boy From Space. And The Boy From Space is genuinely eerie in places. There are sequences where children are walking through desolate locations in the middle of nowhere, and there are these weird alien howling noises that sort of follow them. And there's a character called The Tall Spaceman. When you're seven years old, The Tall Spaceman was the actual worst thing in the world. Seriously. But I'm guessing we're probably going to come back to that one when I've got guests on the show later on in the series. So I'm going to tell you instead about the bit that really scared me, which was the 30-second long cartoon that still gives me a little shiver to this day. I'll give you a quick description of it. There's two sort of space moles on a planet in this cartoon, coming out of little kind of molehill craters in the ground. And it's too bright, and they complain, it's too bright. And they complain about it, and the sun sets. And as the sun sets, a big monster comes out. And the moles get scared, the space moles get frightened. And the sun rises again, and the monster goes away. But this isn't just any monster. Bear in mind, when a monster on like, a children's TV show like that is a fairly big deal in its way, isn't it? You've got to be careful what you do. Oh no, they go one step beyond this one. So, what are kids scared of? Monsters and ghosts. Oh, hang on, let's make it an actual ghost monster. Seriously. It's a space monster and a ghost at the same time. It's horrible. And it, it's drawn and sketched and animated in this weird, grainy chalkboard style that makes it about 80 times more terrifying than it ever needed to be. So that's that one. It's just to make... It's, it's to, they're trying to teach you the I-G-H-T sound. Ight. It's too light. Now it's too bright. Turn on the light and stuff like that. 
But then in the last episode, for zero educational reasons whatsoever, this thing comes back again. So there's one final cartoon insert, right? At the end. And all the characters who've been in the cartoons, there's lots of them. They wave goodbye to us and they leave in a rocket. You know, so that's all the characters that the audience of seven-year-olds have been watching happily for 12 weeks and they've learnt to sing along to little songs with. And what happens to that rocket ship with all our heroic cartoon characters on board? I'll tell you what, the ghost monster turns up and eats them all and then grins into the camera. It is foul. Rewatching this gives me a sort of demonic Proustian rush. And suddenly I'm seven years old again, sitting on the green scratchy carpet in Mrs. Russell's room, and I'm too scared to even close my eyes properly. And then having to walk back from there through our dark school on a creepy November or December day. Of course it was a dark school. You even listened to this show. What do you think my school was like? Anyway, all I could see after that, after watching that at the time, all I could see was swirly chalk mark ghosts haunting every single classroom. I wasn't doing too well in school at that age for lots of reasons. So I guess every chalkboard had some kind of nightmare waiting for me on it. This was just another one of those. Looking back, I'm not sure if I don't prefer this. Well, that brings us to the end of another instalment. Thank you very much for listening and taking a little ride with me on the Violet Ghost Train tonight. As always, we will try and update every Monday or Tuesday, she sounds shakily, and we will do that as often as we can. Hopefully next week or the week after we should be having some guests on the show. The first of our guests on the ghost train. Because it gets terribly lonely riding the ghost train on your own. Just me and the skeletons. So we look forward to that. In the meantime you can find me on Twitter at CrowViolets. And you can also find me on my website CrowViolet in the singular. CrowViolet.com will take you to some of my rambly writings and i'm always on twitter shouting talking folk horror or just ranting about trans rights and stuff because that's what i do this is largely my life but thank you so much for joining us tonight i hope you had a distinctly unpleasant time on the ghost train and i hope you'll come back and join us again next week until then safe ride home mm-hmm.